You are listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 8th of February 2023 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I am Marcus Hippi. Coming up on today's programme, Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky touches down in London for a surprise visit to the UK. We'll unpack what is only his second foreign trip since the start of the war. Also ahead... I'm Monaco's Washington correspondent Chris Chermak, and I'll be taking a look at the visit by NATO's Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg, fresh off a trip to Asia. More from Chris a bit later. Then a new literary award is launched today. The Women's Prize for Nonfiction will find out all the details with its founder and director. Plus, music goes underground as Milan's Metro plays host for a music festival to coincide with the San Remo Festival. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Marcus Hippi. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky is in London today for only his second trip abroad since Russia invaded Ukraine last year. He's seeking additional arms to combat an expected major assault by Moscow. Let's get more on this with the rights commentator and Russia expert Stephen Deal. Stephen, welcome to the programme and good afternoon to you. How surprised are you by this visit and, and also why is it taking place now? I would say I'm not totally surprised in that um, the visit by President Zelensky to the United States showed that he is capable of going out and, and indeed ready to go out of the country to to go and see his uh, his main sponsors. Um, it's I suppose it's the timing. None of us can have known that this was going to happen today. Um, and it's it's hugely significant on a number of levels. First of all, symbolically. You know, it shows the Russians that, look, you know, uh, I, President Zelensky, can still can still travel. Um, you know that we have our backers in the West um, who are going to keep supporting us in this war. Um, I can go and see them. Um, it is, I think what, what perhaps the greatest symbolism of it is that he's not only, of course, um, seeing the, uh, the British Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, who met him off the plane, but he's actually going to have an audience with King Charles III as well. Now, that's that's quite something. Not, not every foreign leader gets to gets to meet um, the new king. So th- that symbolically, it's very good. But of course, the real meat of the matter are, are going to come in the discussions um, that he and his advisers will have, particularly with um, the British Ministry of Defence, which has been one of the strongest supporters, at least in both in terms of of, of um, their oral support, uh, but also in, in terms of the equipment. Britain hasn't been the, the largest supplier of equipment, but it's, it's always one of the first. Bef- when there was the recent row over tanks, you know, will tanks be sent to, uh, to Ukraine or not? Britain was the first country to say, well, we're sending tanks, which put pressure on America and Germany to do the same. Um, so the next stage for that could well be discussion. I'm sure there will be discussions today about aircraft. They're already talking about training Ukrainian pilots. I personally believe that it's not going to be very long before we see Western aircraft being sent to Ukraine too. What, ex- what else do you expect from today's talks? Um, the, the crucial thing is going to be the, the military talks, but it's also that that continual British support um, that, that has come not only from the, the first prime minister he dealt with, Boris Johnson, or the second, uh, Liz Truss, but of course 
Rishi Sunak has been very keen in, in all the political turmoil that's gone on in Britain in recent months to show that one constant from the Conservative government has been the support to Ukraine, but also he's going to Parliament, uh, he's going to address Parliament, and what he's going to find there is total support. Um, this is something which is rather different from what's been happening in the United States, where um, certain Republicans have been voicing concerns about should we still, still be giving such support to Ukraine. In Britain, there's no debate on that. In Britain, the, the Labour opposition, uh, the Liberal Democrats, smaller parties in Parliament are all behind this constant support for Ukraine. And he will certainly feel that when he stands up this afternoon uh, in uh, the Houses of Parliament. Uh, and he will, I, I know for sure, he will get a rapturous reception. He spoke um, remotely on the 8th of March last year, so not long after the war started. But to have him actually in the House of Commons, it, it will be uh, a very celebratory moment all round. Do you think he'll have something new to say to the Parliament? I don't, I don't really expect anything new particularly. It'll be, please keep giving us your support. Um, please giving us more, give us more weapons. You know, his, his message has been constant throughout. Um, and he doesn't apologise for making, if it, you know, people think he sounds like a, um, a broken record going round and round. Um, he has a very engaging way. He's a very, very good public speaker. Um, so he might put it in slightly different terms, but those messages will be the same. Please keep giving us your support and give us more weapons and we will win this war. Stephen, you also already said that this, this visit has a huge symbolic importance. How significant is it for the UK and the UK government that Zelensky is indeed in London now? That's only his second trip overseas before Russia invaded Ukraine. It's very significant, but perhaps not too surprising because, as I mentioned, Britain has been very supportive uh, of Ukraine ever since the, the war started. Um, naturally, in some ways, naturally the first visit was to the United States, and that was a very clever move on Zelensky's part to, to go and actually stand up in Washington and, and speak to American politicians. Um, on the way back from that trip, let's not forget, he also had a meeting with the Polish Prime Minister because, of course, he can't fly out of Kiev. Um, he has to find another way, either by road or by rail, to get out of the country before he can get on a plane. Um, and so it was very clever of him also, and wise, I, think, I would say, to to meet the Polish Prime Minister on that occasion. Um, but to make Britain his second flying stop, um, I think will go down very well in Britain um, with, with parliamentarians and with the people. Um, you, you see all over Britain, uh, in, in remote villages, in, in, on major buildings in big cities, including, for example, the Foreign, the foreign Office in, in Britain, ever since the war started, you see the Ukrainian flag flying. Um, there was a, a worry after a few months of the war that people might get war fatigue and, and get a bit bored with it and, and forget about it. That hasn't happened in Britain. Um, people still uh, talk about the war. People will still wear ribbons on their clothes, will fly the Ukrainian flag. Um, and I think that this, is, this visit will only emphasise that, that this is a, it's a two-sided process. Britain wants to help Ukraine and Ukraine is delighted with the help that Britain's giving. Now Zelensky is expected to continue to Brussels tomorrow and curiously this visit has been has been known for most of the week already if this visit takes place it certainly won't be a surprise visit will it uh, no and uh, again if if i've said that um, the united states was important for him to make his first visit there and I think it's not fair to say it's important the second visit was to Britain. Of course, the European Union is hugely uh, supportive in this as well and hugely important for Ukraine. 
um, particularly in the wake of the decision um, when Germany changed its mind and said it would not only send its own tanks, but would allow other countries that have Leopard 2 German-built tanks to send those. Um, th this, again, will be a, a, a great gesture from Zelensky towards the European Union saying, you know, we really value what you're doing. So, um, yes, he's, you know, he's, 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 a, he's a very clever man. He's, he's, um, he's proved himself to be a leader, um, which is different from just being a ruler. Um, he's, he's leading his country and he's showing on the world stage that, um, that, that he knows how to behave and, and how to, to keep getting that support for Ukraine. So, yes, next stop, European Union, uh, ideal, uh, right idea. That was the writer and commentator Stephen Deal. Thank you very much for joining us today. It's almost 12.09 here in London. Here is Monaco's Carlotta Rebello with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Marcus. Rescuers have warned that time is running out to find survivors in southern Turkey and northern Syria after two huge earthquakes. More than 9,000 people are now known to have died, with many others still trapped under the rubble. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan is set to visit the epicentre of the earthquake today. In a State of the Union speech last night, U.S. President Joe Biden challenged Republicans to lift the debt ceiling and support tax policies friendlier to middle-class Americans. The address has been seen as a blueprint for his 2024 re-election campaign. And the renowned Venezuelan conductor Gustavo Dudamel will become the New York Philharmonic's music and artistic director from 2026, dealing a blow to the music world of Los Angeles. Dudamel has led the Los Angeles Philharmonic since 2009. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Marcus. Thank you very much, Carlosa. Let's head to the United States next, where NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg is visiting this week. He's in Washington to meet with senior officials from Joe Biden's administration, including Secretary of State Antony Blinken and members of Congress. For more on this, I'm joined by Monaco's Washington correspondent, Chris Jemek. Chris, good morning. How has this visit been so far? Any news headlines yet? Good morning, Marcus. Uh, no real news headlines yet, to be honest. The main day of his visit is today. As you mentioned there, he's going to be meeting with the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, also the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin. He's meeting the senior leadership of Congress, both the House and the Senate. And, you know, there are news headlines, of course, and, and we might talk about this at the end. You know, we had the State of the Union from Joe Biden yesterday, so that has taken up much of the space. But the timing of this visit, I think, is very interesting for two different reasons. One of those is, of course, as always, the focus on Ukraine. Uh, and Russia's invasion. It comes at a sort of particularly sensitive time about what kind of weapons Ukraine needs in order to potentially launch a, you know, counteroffensive or continue its counteroffensive against Russia, the decision to send tanks uh, from the United States and Germany. So no doubt Stoltenberg is here in part to shore up support from that. Also from the House leadership, the Republicans in the House of Representatives who have been more skeptical on aid to Ukraine, military and other types of support. And then second from that, related but separate, is of course China, the balloon spying scandal that we have here, but also more in general. Jens Stoltenberg was just in Asia. He was in South Korea and Japan. 
And he has been very much sort of making direct links between Ukraine and China, saying what happens in Europe could also happen in Southeast Asia if we are not careful. So no doubt he is partly here to discuss the way forward with China as well. Do you think Sweden and Finland will be mentioned at all in those discussions and their pending NATO applications? You know, that is a good question. I and mean, yet Jens Stoltenberg has talked about this, of course. He's also said that, in effect, uh, Sweden and Finland would be NATO members, even if their applications have not uh, been, uh, you know, accepted up to this point. But there's, there's always, there's, of course, been strong support for that from the United States. Uh, and in that sense, yeah, no doubt that will be part of the discussions as well, what the way forward is here uh, in terms of getting their membership over the line. How has this trip been viewed in the US so far? What have the papers been saying and what are people talking about? Well, as I say, there hasn't been too much focus yet. I think what has been interesting, if you will, is the focus has been on the kinds of topics that Jens Stoltenberg will be talking about. China has been the absolutely key focus uh, over the last few days here in the United States. Also, as we talked about, uh, Marcus, on Monday's briefing. But there are new revelations, you know, about the, the balloon spying scandal, for example, that the China has had a vast network of balloons that it has been using also in Southeast Asia over the last few years. So that is something that has dominated discussions. And also related to that, what Joe Biden said at his State of the Union yesterday also about foreign policy has been key in that sense. I think today will be the key day where we see what kind of reactions there are to NATO and Jens Stoltenberg himself. Is there a feeling in Washington at the moment that that both the US and NATO, they will need to change the way they have been dealing with China? Well, there is, yes. Uh, what I will say, though, is uh, interestingly, again, to tie it slightly to the State of the Union uh, speech of Joe Biden's from yesterday, you are seeing perhaps a slightly contrasting approach. Joe Biden had been keen, his administration, to try and repair relations to some degree with China to reset over the last few weeks. Even in his speech yesterday, uh, Joe Biden talked about uh, being in competition, not conflict with China. China. He was still, in that sense, trying to stress that although the U.S. will, of course, protect its own sovereignty, as it did by shooting down the spying balloon uh, from China, he also stressed, you know, that yes, the, he stressed more the importance of competition, saying the U.S. was ready to take on China in the competitive space, and that was a key focus of his message. By contrast, Jens Stoltenberg, in his visit to Asia, very much stressed the security threat, the security threat that China poses, the threat that China and Russia together as authoritarian states pose to the international rules-based order. So he was playing up very much the security angle uh, in terms of what China wants in Southeast Asia, its threat to Taiwan, and so on. So I think what might be interesting today to also hear from U.S. administration officials is if they sort of take more of that line from Stoltenberg as well, stressing the security risks that China poses and not just saying in that sense that the US and China are in competition with each other. Now the State of the Union address Biden gave yesterday, which aspects piqued your interest? What caught your attention? What are the biggest takeaways? And also, do you think Biden was able to, to, to give the impression of a strong, successful leader? 
Uh, well, there's there's a lot of different ways to look at the speech uh, from yesterday, Marcus. On, on the foreign policy side, I think, for one thing, it's important to say that there was very little focus on foreign policy in this speech. And that made a very, very sharp contrast to last year when he spoke just six days after Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. At that point, Ukraine was at the very forefront, top of his speech. It was the focus of the first part of his speech, the threat that you Russia opposed to the international rules-based order, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This time around, Ukraine, Russia, and then China, as I mentioned, were all relegated to the bottom sections, the sort of last bits of the speech. And otherwise, his speech was very, very much focused, yes, on showing himself to be a leader here in the United States. It focused on his legislative achievements over the last couple of years. And it was a very combative speech. There was heckling from Republicans uh, throughout it, but something that Joe Biden almost seemed to enjoy. He, he, he rejoined the heckling at many different points in the speech. And in that sense, I think what what was key about this speech was, you know, obviously looking ahead to the 2024 potential elections and whether he will run again. This was his chance to show that he still has a lot of energy, a lot of life in him. There have been some questions about that, you could argue, particularly given his age. And so this was a speech where he showed that he still really has a lot of fight left in him. Um, he was, you know, he was enjoying himself almost, you, you could tell throughout the speech, but also therefore showing the strength that he has, the passion he has to continue making the point that the job is not yet done. He still has a lot more that he wants to achieve here in the United States. Monocle's Chris Jemek in Washington, D.C. Thank you very much. You are with Monocle 24. You are back with the briefing on Monocle 24. Next, it's time to change our focus to the world of literature. The Women's Prize Trust has just announced it is going to create a new annual book prize, the Women's Prize for Nonfiction. The hope is that with this award, the voices of female authors can be further amplified. And for more on this, I'm joined in the studio by Kate Moss, the Women's Prize for Fiction founder, director, author and playwright. Welcome to the programme. Kate, could you first tell us more about your plans for this new prize? Of course, and it's lovely to be here uh, to share it. It's a very exciting day. So what we realised was that although there's more and more exceptional non-fiction uh, by women being published in all sorts of areas, you know, climate, faith, history, biography, science, you name it... Uh, there's still a problem in terms of women's work being acknowledged and uh, rewarded. So, you know, sadly, only about a third of nonfiction books by women ever make it onto winning a nonfiction prize. I'm afraid it's as low as a quarter of books in nonfiction that are reviewed are by women as opposed to men or edited by men. And the same thing is in terms of um, the best of nonfiction books. Uh, when we did a bit of a straw poll last year, it was only, again, a third of those books were by women. And, you know, the question, of course, is why does this matter? Well, it matters because readers are missing out uh, because there's exceptional books out there and they don't get to hear about them because prizes put works of quality in the public gaze. And that's what we want to do with the Women's Prize for Nonfiction. And how do you explain those numbers otherwise? Why is it that female authors get so little attention still? Well, you know, I... It's really hard to say. There's never just one thing. But I would say there is still an idea that men writing are writing for everyone. 
And women writing are writing for women i.e. the idea of the male expert is quite persistent as opposed to the idea of the expert, whether they might be a man or a woman and whatever they're writing about. So I think that persists. I also think that um, sometimes it's the way that books are marketed and sold. So when we did a, a big campaign last year for fiction called Men Reading Women, um, only 19% of men admit, and they quite often use that word, <laughs> admit to ever reading a book by a woman. And it's more acute when it comes to non-fiction. So all we're saying is there are some incredible books out there and we want to put those in the public gaze because prizes keep work of quality on the shelves. The very well-known sister prize, the Women's Prize for Fiction, has already existed for almost 30 years. What do you think have been the greatest things this award has achieved? Well, do you know, I think it's... You know, I'm, I'm just about to go on tour with a one-woman show based on my book Warrior Queens and Quiet Revolutionaries. And I've been doing a huge amount of research, therefore, into women and how women get their voices heard in all sorts of areas. And it's very straightforward that women have always had to battle to be accepted in the spaces as equal with men. And in many cultures, that's been forbidden and illegal. and others, it's just been one of those things that happens, you know, benign neglect, as I often think about it. And so when I've been trying to work out what the prize for fiction has achieved, I, one of the things is this, that it got people talking. It got people talking about why women's work, even though 60% of novels published when we were setting up the prize back in uh, the 1990s were by women, only 9% of novels ever shortlisted for major literary prizes were by women. So it starts a dialogue because in the end, women and men built the world together. Mm -hmm. So we should all be there. You know, we should all have a seat at the table. And then you can make your decision. You don't have to agree with people, but you read everything and then you listen and then you debate. And so that's what we've done for the prize for fiction we've all made it a debate about why women's voices weren't being honored and now with non-fiction we realize there is an issue there and wouldn't it be great if we could do the same for non-fiction you know this is the time to be bold exactly now this new non-fiction prize let's let's recap a few things about that so who is it is it open to does does the author's background or language matter it's uh, books written in english uh, by a f single female author, so not a book of essays with many, many authors um, involved in it, for example. It will be what's known as narrative nonfiction. Uh, so that is, um, if you like, a, a book that has a central premise, a central theme. It's a book to be read. It's not an illustrated book with a, a couple of captions around the side. Um, the rules and regs will be exactly the same as the price for fiction, and it will be exactly the same in that it's publishers that will nominate books, not authors. Uh, so where it, it is a sister prize in every single way. There will be five judges. It will be an all-female judging panel. Uh, we will award it uh, at the same time. Uh, it will be, you know, a super big uh, award ceremony now. It's always been quite big, but now it's going to be, you know, twice the size because mm -hmm. we'll have all the non-fiction as well. And we will, you know, we're, we're a charity. We have an enormous charitable purpose. Uh, we do a huge amount of work into mentoring new writers in the fiction area. We do a lot of campaigns. We fund a lot of research. And of course, over time, this is about growing the chari our charitable purpose. Uh, we have two fabulous sponsors with Baileys and Audible for the fiction side. And so we're now looking for a couple of uh, family of sponsors for the non-fiction side. And there are three things. It's not just about putting women's work out there and giving it the attention it deserves. It's also about readers getting what they deserve. But I think more than that, there are two things for potential sponsors, because we already have the prize money from the Charlotte Aitken Trust, which is fabulous. 
uh, way to get us going, is that firstly, companies and our partners like to have things that they can give to their own members of staff. And that's important. But I would also say in a rather maybe idealistic way still um, that you can't be what you can't see. And what I also love is the idea of women of all ages, but of course, younger women in particular, looking at the prize for nonfiction and thinking, that could be me. I'm a scientist, but if, why can't I put my, my thoughts out into the world? I'm interested in climate. Why can't I put that? Or I'm interested in faith, consequences of faith. Why can't I put that out there? So there is an element, I suppose, with the Women's Prize for Fiction and now the Women's Prize for Nonfiction, which we hope to award for the first time in 2024, of inspiring the next generation of writers too. And of course, the next generation of writers could be women of my age who just haven't quite got going yet. <laughs> okay, just finally, you've been running the the Women's Prize for Fiction Prize for, for almost 30 years. What's been your favourite moment so far? <laughs> oh, Lord. Well, I mean, when I announced it, the very first time I announced it... Um, uh, th this is a thing that happens to women. I'm quite short. And uh, there was a lectern, and that was clearly designed for a statuesque man, shall we say. So I looked ridiculous. Nobody could see me, just the top of my head. Um, so they got me a box. But unfortunately, the box was um, a bit ropey. And as I stood up you know, for the first time to say, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to, I went through the box. So it started with comedy. Um, it was very aggressive when I was setting it up. There were lots of criticisms, lots of comments about this being sexist. You know, people... People moan. There's a lot of people who moan, and I live by the suffragette um, uh, sort of slogan, which is deeds, not words. And so it gave me great pleasure that some of the biggest moaners tried to later gatecrush the party when they realised that the Women's Prize was a success. Kate Moss, the Women's Prize for Fiction founder, director, author and playwright, thank you very much for joining us today. You are listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. And finally in the programme, Milan's Metro System is this week hosting the first ever Metropolitan Song Festival, a music festival taking place underground, coinciding with the famous Sanremo Festival, which is happening at the same time. For more on this, I'm joined in the studio by Chiara Rimella, Monaco's executive editor. Welcome to the programme. So Chiara, could you tell us more about what's happening in the Milan Underground this week? Of course. Well, San Metro is a rather funny play on words on the word San Remo, which is actually the country's biggest and most awaited film, um, music festival, which is taking place in the town of San Remo in Liguria this week, concurrently. But San Metro is actually happening in Milan across three different underground stations. The idea is that there are a number of bands who've been selected to go on to playing in these sort of busking stations and they will face off each other over the course of this week in certain slots and then the public will decide who their winners are. Nine winners will go on, nine finalists will go on to perform on Friday and uh, and it's going to be a bit of a kind of underground in both senses uh, version and response to the, the country's biggest kind of musical event of uh, of the week and the year I would say. How do you think this idea was born? Is the idea to get more people engaged with San Remo when you have music in the underground stations as well? I don't think that you need to get any more people involved in San Remo because it is such a huge deal in the country. Nobody talks about anything else. It is the top news story on the many of the, new, on the newspapers through the week. You know, obviously counterbalanced during the day by the news of the earthquake in Turkey and then in Syria. And then the, the moment the evening comes, San Remo shoots to the top of the news agenda for the whole country 
it's a nice way of engaging this specific uh, underground festival is a nice way of engaging uh, people into an underground network station that is a little bit unloved at times it's not the most swanky um, and so it, it's it's an initiative that was already born and it's called Sound Underground so it's kind of opening the busking stations to whoever wants to apply and go and play and, it, and they're quite nicely marked out and they're open to bands and easily accessible and reachable I think it's interesting that, you know, to connect this back to San Remo, there is a precedent for people, um, artists busking and then shooting to the top of the Italian and world charts. You know, Maneskin, who went on to win San Remo and to win Eurovision in 2021 and are now kind of globally renowned, actually started off busking in Rome. There are plenty of videos of them doing their little gigs kind of street side. So there could be a precedent and maybe winning San Metro could lead mm. to the same type of international success. It's worth keeping your eyes open when you are at these Milan underground stations. Now, you mentioned already that San Remo is a huge thing in Italy. What kind of coverage has it been getting so far? How much can you tell about tell us about this year's edition? It's it's great actually because what's funny about this music festival is that it's not really just a music festival. It really sets the agenda for a lot of the cultural discussions, and I mean culture in a wider sense, um, just society discussions in the country. So. All of the reports about what happened last night, which is which was the initial night of the festival, really center on the kind of guests that went and did, um, you know, monologues or intervened on a series of society issues. Roberto Benigni, who is Oscar winner, um, director and actor in Italy, did a, a very kind of moving speech about the constitution and the freedom of expression, which is particularly, I guess, poignant at a time where people are being very sensitive about the rise of neo fascism in Italy. The President of the Republic was actually present and in attendance for the first ever time in the history of the festival. Again, it gives you an idea of how important politically this is. Lots of the politicians have had things to say about it. Salvini has kind of said that he doesn't realize, he doesn't understand why the Constitution had to be discussed on a kind of um, stage like this kind of popular stage, Salvini being the far-right minister now of transports, but in, in the past uh, very instrumental to the far-right government as well. And there was a huge controversy regarding whether Zelensky would make an appearance. Mm at the festival. He won't in the end but he'll send a letter which will be read out on stage and Salvini again said I won't be listening which which kind of gives you an idea of how much this is kind of picked up by politics as well and not just by people who are in it just to listen to songs. And also what's worth noting is that the winner of San Remo Festival is going to go to Liverpool to represent Italy at the Eurovision Song Contest. Do you have any favourites at the moment? Well, I would say that I spent the morning coming into the office this morning listening to Elodie's new single, which made its kind of San Remo debut last night. It's called Due. Um, I really like her. She's been a kind of a fixture of the kind of summer playlist for a while for me. She's always got nice tracks that are a little bit left field and not just your usual reggaeton for kind of summer singles. So I would really like to see her in Liverpool later this year. Fingers crossed. Just finally, Chiara, do you think Italians are more excited about Eurovision thanks to the success of the likes of Moneskin? Because I feel like back in the day at some point, there wasn't that much enthusiasm anymore. Definitely. I mean, 
who doesn't love winning? So <laughs> I think that definitely helped. Um, and also, people were so disappointed when Mahmoud, who's so beloved at home, didn't go on to win when the Eurovision actually was in Turin. So they'll be hoping for a comeback for sure. Monaco's executive editor, Kiara Rimela, thank you very much. And that's all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Carlo Terribello. Our researcher was Andre Nikolai Pamintuan and our studio manager was Nora Huell. The Briefing is back tomorrow at the same time at midday here in London, 7am in Toronto. I am Marcus Hippi. Goodbye and thanks for listening.